and welcome to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. I'm Tim Wyatt, Digital Editor. This week I've been joined by Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor, Madeline Davies, Deputy News Editor, and Hattie Williams, Reporter. I think we'll start this week by looking at uh, the question of Syria. Um, Madeline, you wrote a story about the chemical attack uh, in this week's paper, but obviously events have moved on since then. And, and last night, uh, the Americans uh, launched a missile strike in retaliation against the chemical attack on um, one of the Assad regime's air force bases. What's kind of the church reaction been to that so far? I have to say that I haven't seen a huge amount of church reaction. Um, I've not seen uh, many bishops commenting. I did interview Nadim Nassar, who is a Syrian priest in the CV this morning, who has been a long-time opponent of any kind of military intervention in Syria, um, and he said that he was devastated um, to wake up to the news of the US strike. And what kind of church reaction did we have to the original chemical weapons attack earlier this week? So I asked the Bishop of Coventry for comment because he's been the main spokesperson for the bishops in the House of Lords on Syria. And he's basically pushing for a political solution. Um, he said that um, heroic international cooperation has to accompany prayer. Um, and so that he would like to see humanitarian aid, um, but also um, immediate efforts for peace. Um, and he's spoken last year in the House of Lords um, about the importance of reaching a political solution and the impossibility, really, of solving the Syrian crisis through military means. Has the Archbishop of Canterbury made any statement about this? So immediately um, after news of the alleged chemical attack, he called on people to pray, lament and protest for justice. The Archbishop of Canterbury in 2013 opposed military intervention um, following another chemical attack. But he later in 2015 said that the just war criteria had been met um, when there was a debate on the use of airstrikes against ISIS. I think it's interesting that it seems like for many people, the Syrian civil war was kind of just grinding along in endless horror and there was no movement. But it seems like now suddenly the stakes have changed. Um, America has got a new president who everyone thought might be quite isolationist, but has actually, to everyone's surprise, has decided to intervene militarily in Syria to an extent which uh, President Obama seemed unlikely to. I wonder whether the, this will lead to some kind of movement, maybe in peace talks or whether um, you know, this could this could be the beginning of some kind of end game for the Syrian conflict. I think speaking to Nadim Nassar this morning, he really called out what he sees as hypocrisy. So why is it that a gas attack, um, which has killed upwards of seventy people, has provoked this response? But um, you know, many years of the use of conventional weapons, barrel bombings, um, suicide bombings, has from his point of view, failed to move the international community. Um, so he sees it as hypocrisy. Um, I think it's also important to note that despite President Trump's criticism of Obama, in 2013, uh, Donald Trump opposed military action, um, opposed upholding the red line. Um, so many people will be questioning why he's now accusing his predecessor of, um, of failure. And we see a lot of people say, you know, the alternative to military action is a renewed push on aid. But the UN's latest appeal for Syria is just 9% funded. So it seems like most of the world is actually doing neither and just sitting on its hands. 
The UK actually announced this week an additional £160 million of funding. And I think it's right that we are the second largest bilateral donor to Syria since 2012. But certainly the UN has warned that its appeal is drastically underfunded and it's warned that it will probably have to cut um, food for Syrian refugees in the region. And there was a conference in Brussels this week um, at which further aid was pledged. But we have seen before that um, pledges made at international conferences don't always materialise. So countries can promise millions of pounds, but whether those are actually um, honoured um, is not always clear. Another big story we've covered in this week's paper is uh, big changes to the BBC's religion and ethics broadcasting. Um, what's the story here, Hattie? Sure. So to give us some context, um, there's been a question mark over the future of religious broadcasting for some time now, um, due in part, I suppose you could say, to our increasingly secular nation. And with that, a steady decline in interest in in television and radio programmes concerning faith. Now, the BBC has always been known for its excellence and kind of expertise, really, in in religious broadcasting in the past. Um, Its coverage of Christmas and Easter services, for example, flagship programmes like Songs of Praise. Um, But obviously, a decline in demand um, and interest um, means that these programmes are the first to go. So although Songs of Praise, uh, according to the BBC, will continue to air on BBC One, same day, same time, it will no longer be produced by the BBC um, because it removed its in-house guarantee um, a few months ago as part of a Royal Charter agreement with the government. Um, And that was an agreement to open up 40% of its returning television series to a competitive market. And the BBC Studios was created to compete in this market Um, and last month um, it actually failed to um, procure this contract for Songs of Praise and as a result um, the BBC have decided or been forced, whatever you uh, think, to fold um, its BBC Studios religion and ethics department altogether and that's the story this week that it's resulted in several uh, redundancies. And does that mean that there will be no more religious broadcasting made in-house at the BBC in the future as well? That's not quite clear at the moment. So they've made redundancies. Um, they're all producers, um, but that doesn't mean to say that they'll stop producing altogether. Um, they do have um, a religion and ethics department in Glasgow, I believe, um, with a in partnership with another production company. Um, so I think there is some scope there, and that's what the BBC have been focusing on in their response because obviously it's quite difficult to um, to make good news out of uh, the closure of a department and redundancies. There's quite a, a number of bishops who um, who often have their finger on the pulse when it comes to religious broadcasting mm. who have quite strong opinions about that. Have they weighed into this dispute? Um, not in a huge way. Um, we spoke to um, the Bishop of Leeds on Saturday, um, largely because he has an interest as he chairs the um, Sanford St Martin Trust, which rewards excellence in religious broadcasting. Um, and he very simply said that um, although radio remains untouched, um, he said the loss of a specialist department in television uh, poses serious questions for the BBC and we will need to see how it will respond to Ofcom's demands. And what he's referring to here are proposals published by Ofcom on how it intends to regulate the BBC's performance under this Royal Charter, Um, and that includes uh, new requirements to show religious programmes at peak times. Hmm. We've got Roger Bolton, a former presenter of Radio 4's Sunday programme, known to many, I'm sure, writing in our comment pages this week. He's written a piece that's very critical of the BBC's 
um, strategy when it comes to religion, more or less saying they don't really have one and that they're dysfunctional. Um, and he, he makes the point that the BBC has fatally weakened its in-house programme making team precisely at the time when the corporation's regulator Ofcom has called for it to broadcast more TV religious programming in prime time. Have the BBC responded to this? Sure. So they um, issued um, a comment to us on Monday um, and they obviously defended its uh, religious output um, and said that actually entering that competitive market, which um, put Songs of Praise up for grabs um, and and the consequences, um, uh, losing that and and the redundancies, they said not being their choice. Um, Nonetheless, they said that Ofcom had focused on the right priorities um, and that uh, Songs of Praise, uh, despite being produced um, by an independent production companies, would remain at the heart of the BBC schedule alongside um, uh, new commissions for Easter, which obviously they were very keen to um, highlight. And I wonder whether the BBC has a, as a national broadcaster, public service one, has a particular remit to continue providing programmes that cater even to a small minority of the population in the same way that we, we say it still has a responsibility to provide programmes in Welsh and other minority languages, even if though they'll never achieve mass appeal. I think one of the points Roger Bolton's making is that, particularly among immigrant communities, religion is central to their mm-hmm. lives. So this kind of secular, more increasingly secular BBC is out of touch with a growing number of of people in Britain is probably underestimating how central faith is. I actually recall listening to Roger Bolton at a panel a couple of years ago um, at the Groucho Club which was um, about religious programming Um, and he actually suggested that the BBC um, had recruited people in the 1960s um, and onwards who had assumed that religion would die out Um, and he was quite critical of the culture there. Um, and suggested that it was actually quite out of step with reality, which is that Britain is now a very multicultural country um, in which for many people religion is important to their lives. And actually the BBC has a really important part to play in educating people, including people who don't personally have a religion, um, about what other people and their neighbours believe. Tim, you were at a service at Westminster Abbey on Wednesday. for the victims of the terror attack a couple of weeks ago. Um, Can you give us a flavour of what it was like to sort of be there and um, what the service was like? Yeah, it was was an interesting experience. It was obviously very sombre and kind of solemn, as you'd expect, Um, absolutely crammed full of uh, police officers, um, some paramedics, um, kind of political and faith leaders, and, and also the families of those who were injured and killed in the attack exactly a fortnight ago when the service took place. Um, yeah, so there was some some hymns, there were some prayers, quite moving actually. There was a few police officers, senior and junior, from different faiths, Muslims and Sikhs, who said prayers in their own traditions, as well as the the standard kind of Christian liturgies. Um, and it was just a kind of, it was billed as a service of hope rather than simply a kind of remembrance. So the the theme of the address by the Dean of Westminster, um, John Hall, was was all about finding ways to go move forward while remembering those we've lost, not not allowing terror to to divide us, but actually to say all of these different world faiths, though we disagree on many things, we all agree that we abhor violence and we are determined to kind of live in peace and harmony together in Britain. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, was there. He took part in the service. He did, yeah. He actually, um, right at the end, he kind of concluded the time of prayer by quoting the prayer which is often ascribed to St Francis of Assisi, um, Lord, make us channels of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us bring your love. Where there is despair in life, let us bring hope. Where there is darkness, only light. And the kind of the, the 
key uh, kind of center of the service was everyone was given these small white handheld candles and then um uh, at the ends of all the rows a verger would light the candle and then people would light the candle of that person next to them and so this kind of little flickers of light spread throughout the abbey it was, it was actually quite moving so alongside that story we've got a photo of melissa cochran who was one of those injured in the attack um, who actually lost her husband and there was a very powerful interview this week on the bbc where she talked about how he would have um, not held any hatred um, towards his attacker and how she too um, was not filled with hate because she knew that that would um, prevent her healing, which was um, a very powerful response to the attack. Joe Ware, who works at Christian Aid, has written a comment piece for next week's Church Times arguing that Christians need to join the fight to defend the 0.7% international aid spending target which was signed into law in 2015. I spoke to him to find out why. So Joe, why do you think the 0.7% target is under threat at the moment? Clearly, in certain parts of the media, there is a uh, quite a committed campaign at the moment to see it, it, it scrapped. I mean, the Daily Mail, probably the country's biggest, most influential newspaper, um, has got a formal campaign getting readers to uh, write to their MPs and sign petitions for it to be scrapped. And I think amongst certain politicians um, who are ideologically opposed to it, um, they see a real opportunity with the current political landscape to um, to have a crack at it and, and get it out of the next uh, government manifesto. And the supporters of the aid target, are they largely the types you would imagine? I mean, it's it was introduced by a Conservative government, but are the supporters mostly um, people on the left of politics and the development sector itself? I think that's probably broadly correct that it has historically been um, slightly more shifted towards the left uh, of, of, of the political spectrum but actually the, the real fight I think is actually going on within the Conservative Party right now and there's a number of committed supporters of the aid budget obviously David Cameron brought it in himself um, Andrew Mitchell the former DFID uh, Secretary of State has been a, a big fan and you've got commentators like Tim Montgomery who uh, write in support of it quite often um, yeah, and so I think it's uh, it's actually it's, it's a live debate, and it and it does span the uh, the political spectrum. In fact, um, uh, in my piece actually, there's a a quote there from Desmond Swain, the Conservative minister who used to be in the Department of International Development, making the the quite nice point that um, you know, he didn't wouldn't want to spend much time with people who spent ninety nine point three percent of all their money on themselves, and uh, yet that is actually what we do as a country. And when you put it into that perspective, actually, I think that's quite a good way of looking at the aid budget. So you think the church could become one of the key uh, sectors of society to fight in the fight back to protect the 0.7% uh, target? Absolutely. I really think there's, there's a great opportunity there. I mean, there's that sort of uh, long-running uh, idea that the, that the Church of England is the Tory party at prayer, which is probably taking it a bit too far. But there was a report in 2014 by Theos, which did show that there's a, a, a large number of, um, of uh, church-going Anglicans do support the, the Conservative Party. And um, a lot of, a lot of, and that's where I think that's where the real debate is going to be. It's within the Conservative Party about what is going to be in their next manifesto. And I feel like MPs are often swayed by what's in their mailbag. And, and they do get a lot of letters, I think, from people who are angry about the aid budget, led by the likes of the Daily Mail and others. And so this is, I think, where there's a real opportunity to, to write to our MPs, uh, especially if you have a Conservative MP, and just make the case and say why actually you think it's a good thing that we 
we um, keep our promises to some of the poorest people in the world. Yeah, the um, you know Theresa May's keeps it reasonably quiet about her um, being a daughter of a, a vicarage, but you never know that actually the Conservative Party, as they put together their manifesto for the next election, um, will be interested. I think to know what the what their Anglican supporters think on the subject. So I think we definitely have an opportunity to um, to make the case. Is it not true though that actually? the Daily Mail's case against aid is not entirely baseless. I mean, we shouldn't... Is there a danger that we basically assume that because it's coming from, from, from right-wing newspapers that, that the case is ideologically driven? There must be ways we can improve aid. Absolutely, yes. And in my piece, I point out that it's not fake news. A lot of the stories about the aid budget um, and that we have to be extremely um, honest about the fact that aid is not perfect. Um, any good development agency... Um, will will be committed to transformational development they don't want to just be handing out um, food parcels um, that's not going to ultimately solve the problem sometimes in a humanitarian emergency you absolutely need food parcels but you really want to be tackling those big structural causes of poverty and so this is why i think you know a christian aid actually we are very supportive when newspapers do exposés on some of the um, abuses of the aid budget Recently, there's a lot of news around the consultancy firm Adam Smith International, which was criticised for milking large amounts of money from, from the aid budget. And we would hugely support that kind of criticism. And also just, you know, writing checks to the World Bank that, you know, you're not particularly then keeping on track of. So there are definitely areas that, that need to be improved. That's almost a separate debate. I think it's important that we commit to the aid budget in principle and then once we've got that which we do we can then really knuckle down and uh, and improve the the way the aid is spent and make sure that the aid is 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 good and a single example of um, bad aid will get far more headlines than lots of examples of really good aid it's that whole journalistic line about man bites dog is a story but dog bites man isn't and so um we have to we have to recognize that there's all good that goes on that, that, that DFID and other agencies do often do go unreported because they're not actually news stories. They're just doing what they're supposed to do. But then one one bad example will end up uh, falling into the hands of, of the Mail and the Sun and others and they will and they will write a story about it. And we have to accept that that's, that's part of the business. Is there part of the problem that David Cameron adopted this aid target as part of his broad project to detoxify the Conservative Party? to um, present a kind of kinder face to the quote-unquote nasty party. But clearly, he didn't do the hard work in changing the hearts and minds of many of Tory ministers, backbenchers, and even, you know, Tory voters. Is there a problem in having this rigid target, which compels ministers to spend a certain amount of money without actually having first convinced them and the wider nation of the value of aid? Well, yes, the, getting into the flaws of, uh, of the legacy of David Cameron is probably uh, a po whole podcast on its own. He got the, the legislative stuff done, which was positive, but, but maybe he didn't make the, the fuller, wider case as effectively as he could have been. Um, but in terms of um, the, the reasoning behind you know, why, the, uh, why he, he pushed that agenda, um, I'm not too worried about the, um, the motives, to be honest, as long as the outcome is a positive one. And in terms of the aid budget, I think it is helpful to have um, uh, something, something that's fixed, that we can uh, commit to, that will go up when we have more money and will then go down when we have less. Um, it's not perfect and there are not, there's an argument to be said that actually you should base it on need, not on um, 
not on what, what we can afford. But in terms of trying to um, have, a, have a policy which fits around the income of a, of a government and, a, and of a single nation, we can't solve all the problems on our own, but we can commit to 0.7% of our income. You, you finish off your comment piece in, in the Church Times by talking about what kind of country Britain wants to be post-Brexit, whether, whether it will follow the lead of Donald Trump and become a kind of Britain first looking inwards or whether it will decide to, to seek a more open relationship in the world. How do you think aid can kind of play into this uh, kind of critical decision the UK faces? Yes, I think this is a really interesting point. And uh, the author David Goodhart has, has written on this subject about that actually we're moving away from a kind of historical left-right divide to one that's more about whether we're open or closed. And I think the perception of Brexit amongst a lot of people was that this was us withdrawing from the world, it was us looking inward, and it was kind of putting up the barriers. And actually, I think that aid is a perfect example of, of the kind of open, welcoming and uh, compassionate Britain that I think many of us would like um, the UK to, to be in the future. And so um, rather than the aid budget just being used as uh, some leverage for Liam Fox's trade deals, I think actually if we, if we use it right, it, it is a great demonstration um, to the world that we aren't, uh, we aren't withdrawing to our little island, that we, that we have um, a future that's uh, open and welcoming and looking outwards to the world and, and that we ultimately care about the plight of the world's poorest people and that we want to do something about that. As Christians, we've got uh, a biblical and a, uh, a spiritual underpinning to, to the aid budget and, and to our commitment to the world's poorest people. We obviously have the parable of the, the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells. And for the Samaritan, it's not a, a costless exercise to care for the, the injured man. You know, it cost him, uh, it was a personal sacrifice. It's worth remembering that the aid budget, although it is tiny actually compared to our total income, it's not entirely without, without cost and to us. And I think that that's, that's actually part of why it's so important. And actually that's why we are demonstrating to the world that actually it's in all of our interest to, to, give, um, to give up something of our own to, to help those that really need it. And then we've got that great passage in James 1.27, uh, which says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I think that's just a great reminder of, of who are our orphans and widows today. And they are some of the poorest people in the world and that's, and that's what the UK aid budget is really there for. So we have any favourite quotes from the newspaper this week? Hattie? Uh, well, mine is from uh, the Bishop of Crediton, the Right Reverend Sarah Mullally, and this was in regard to um, safeguarding um, proposals from the National Safeguarding Team of the Church of England, um, which was in response to um, an independent review last year. Um, and she says, practical changes resulting from any review are always important, but these must be accompanied by a hearts and minds sea change so we respond with compassion to all who come forward. I was really touched by a feature this week by Martin Thomas who's um, a team rector in the Diocese of Southwark who wrote a really personal uh, piece about his family's recent experience of miscarriage and um, he concludes a piece like this. At the extremes our language and our theology prove themselves insufficient. The cross lies at another extreme limit, one of apparently complete abandonment and dereliction, another place beyond language. As we move into Holy Week, we need to be standing very close to that reality if we are to catch a word of hope just now.
One of my favourite quotes in the paper this week was from Andrew Brown's press column um, talking about the Easter egg row involving Cadbury and the National Trust. Cultural wars are not such good business as real wars, but they do have the advantage that everyone can win, and in this case did. Mrs May gets to pose as a defender of English values and traditions, the National Trust gets publicity, and so does the Church of England. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find news, analysis, comment, book reviews and more on our website. You can also find our latest subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music this week was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.